0: Thank you. Hi, Pastor Mark here on the southern steps of the Temple Mount in God's Providence, preaching on idolatry with the Muslim prayers of Ramadan in the background. Jesus is determined to get me in as much sanctified trouble as possible. (laughs) Behind me to my right is a mosque. If you hear something explode, it is not likely a gunshot. If so, it is probably for me, and do not worry. Uh, But it is probably fireworks, as it is Ramadan, the holy month, for some. Uh, As we are here, I am a bit overwhelmed with this opportunity. These are the steps that Jesus Christ himself would have walked up and down perhaps first in the arms of his mother Mary or his father Joseph. I'll explain it in the course of the sermon, but these steps are part of the Herodian temple and they are the exact place that Jesus would have been. We find ourselves at the most generous entrance to the temple area, which would have been just on the other side of this wall, the temple mount, and it was... The workers and the Gentiles and others who would come in through this gate, there were various gates for people to enter into according to their position, religiously and politically in the society. And this was the most generous for those of us who are Gentiles. This would have been our entrance. And so we know that this is where Jesus would have spent a considerable amount of time when we hear of him frequently preaching and teaching at the temple. We can ascertain that much of that was likely done here because this was the place to gather the largest crowds and speak to the widest audience. And as we look out, uh, we see the Mount of Olives. We see the Kidron Valley. We see the city of David. And I want to share with you preaching from the same place that Jesus did, which is an unbelievable opportunity for which I am exceedingly glad And then, great gratitude to God. I wanted to share with you from the Gospel of Luke. And we will begin in chapter 2, verse 22. The first occasion of the entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ to this place. I feel, however, we should first pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach where Jesus did to be where Jesus was, to talk about who Jesus is. I pray that you would send me and us the Holy Spirit, that he would do battle against the demons and the principalities and the powers of the air that even fill the air in our ears in this moment. God, it is a continual reminder that the world does not yet know your son. And though they have loudspeakers, We have the Holy Spirit, and we ask for power in His name, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 2. What would have happened on this occasion is that Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus as a young baby boy, perhaps roughly six or so weeks of age, to be dedicated. They would have started most likely down the hill, There would have been places for ceremonial cleansing and washing and bathing, showing the expiating work that Jesus would accomplish on the cross, that he would cleanse us from our unrighteousness, that he would wash away our sins, to show that they desired this atoning sacrifice, this penalty payment for sin. They would wear white, and then they would ascend the temple steps just as they would ascend into Jerusalem. If you talk to any Jews, Messianic Jews to this day, they will talk not about going to Jerusalem, but ascending to Jerusalem, a city on a hill. And they would talk about not going to the temple, but ascending to the temple. And as they would ascend to the temple, it was showing that they were pilgrimaging toward God. And as they were physically climbing the steps, spiritually, it was expected that their soul would lift in praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God. And if you've read the Psalms, you will read the Psalms of what? The Psalms of Ascent. And those Psalms were to be sung so that the heart would grow gladder and gladder as one made more progress toward the presence of God. And so this was the... Activity of Jesus, Mother Mary, and his adoptive father, Joseph. Again, he is roughly six weeks old. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem. Now, remember, they are traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem. This is about 140 miles. This would have taken them roughly a week. This is a very serious, devoted family. This is a couple who greatly loves God. This is a couple that is living in Nazareth, 140 miles away, a small town, perhaps 50, 100 people, very small in that day, not a great number of people. They are simple peasants. In all likelihood, both the mother and the father are perhaps illiterate, but they are devoted to Yahweh. They are devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are devoted to the God of the Scriptures. And so when their son is born, the Lord Jesus Christ, they do according to the custom of the law of the Old Testament, and they bring him to the temple for his dedication. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb, shall be called holy to the Lord. Indeed, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now, as we read the totality of the Gospel of Luke, we hear this phrase mentioned on five occasions, that they did according to what is said in the law of God. And it is showing us the devout nature of Mary and Joseph. Now, you must understand that Mary, when she was told that she would give birth to the Lord Jesus, she was probably a teenage girl, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age. She is likely illiterate in a small town that is obscure, far removed from the temple and the religious activity of the day. Coming here would have been a magnificent event for her. Her town is perhaps 100, and this town is perhaps 100,000. This is a simple young woman giving birth to God incarnate and carrying him in her arms as his mother in obedience to the scriptures because she loves God and she believes the scriptures. And this statement that she did according to the law of the Lord is articulated five times by Luke to repeatedly, emphatically, and clearly teach us His mother loved God and his father loved God. And for mothers and fathers who love God, this is the hope, the expectation, the anticipation that our children would grow up to love God, to worship God. And so when they are in the womb, we pray for them. When they are birthed, we dedicate them. And she is bringing her child here, the Lord Jesus Christ, to dedicate him. The story goes on a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons were offered. In that day, that was not the sacrifice that was expected. That was the sacrifice that was permitted in the law of Moses as an exception clause for the poor. Luke's gospel repeatedly mentions the poor. Luke shows Jesus was poor And he, in fact, had a heart for the poor and he was oftentimes beloved by the poor. He would feed the poor, care for the poor, encourage the poor, and give the poor promises of God's generous, lavish provision that was forthcoming in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' mother and father, though devoted to God and devout in faith, they cannot afford a typical sacrifice. What does this teach you? That ultimately it is not the size of the gift, but it is the heart of the worshiper and the degree of sacrifice that determines whether or not one's gift is appropriate in the sight of God. They are poor. They cannot offer a typical sacrifice. And so they give a sacrifice that is for those who are poor. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This man, Simeon, he loves God, the Holy Spirit is confirmed in his heart and his soul and his mind that he is coming to that point that Paul will later call the fullness of time, that everything is coming together, that he is in a strategic moment, that Everything in God's providence and sovereign rule over history is in alignment for something very significant to happen. And that inaugurates with the Son of God coming to the temple of God. When Jesus and the temple come together, we see the fulfillment of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant. This is a new epoch in human history. This is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And Simeon, because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he is consciously aware of this. And he is waiting with eager anticipation and expectation for the revelation of God. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, the long-expected One. And he came in the Spirit. Luke is emphatic to repeatedly teach us about the Holy Spirit. Luke shows that Jesus was revealed by prophecy through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was filled and led by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in his baptism, enabling and empowering and encouraging his ministry. He is very keen to remind us continually of the work of the Holy Spirit, both through what we would consider natural events, those providential moments where God brings people, circumstances, and things together, And those more obvious supernatural moments were miracles, prophecies, revelations, the combating with demons, those kinds of activities occur. And Simeon has this revelation from the Holy Spirit. He has a prophecy. And he came in the Spirit, verse 27, into the temple, which in the days of Jesus would have been just behind and above me. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, so here is Simeon holding Jesus. God becomes a man. It is not that men and women become gods as the lie of Genesis 3 says and nearly every religion sense articulates and emphasizes. It is that God humbled himself and became a man. It is not that we ascend necessarily up to God, but God descends down to be with us. And Simeon has an occasion where he gets to hold God incarnate, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his hands where? In where? The temple. The temple. The story continues. Here is what he said. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your what? Salvation. This child is my salvation. That you have prepared in the presence for all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. What an appropriate place to read this verse on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, the place where the Gentiles were welcome to come to the very presence of God, the closest they could get to the Holy of Holies, the actual presence of God in glory in that day on the earth. And for glory to your people, Israel. Does God love the Jews? Yes. Does God love the Gentiles? Yes. For whom did Jesus come as Savior? People from every language, tribe, tongue, nation, culture, background, and subculture of people. In Revelation, we see that they are all gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him as God. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, perhaps a pastoral prayer. I mean, being a pastor, one of the great gifts of my life Is to actually pray over people. To demonstrably indicate them. God's affection toward them. God's consideration of them. God's devotion to them. I see Simeon as an old, old servant of God. And this is the fulfillment of all of his life's expectation. And all of the scriptures revelation. And I see him placing a hand on Mary. And praying for her. She has an enormous job to raise this child. And praying for his adoptive father Joseph to be a good father to this boy. The scriptures go on to tell us. Verse 34 And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, he has a destiny. For the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. What he says is this boy will grow up to be a man who is the center of extraordinary controversy, conflict, division, acrimony, strife, that he will be the fulcrum on which human history revolves All of that prophecy of Simeon came true. History is divided into B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, around this man, Jesus. In this very place, he is still incredibly divisive. There is great acrimony and strife. We are here as Christians. Behind us is the wailing wall with the Jews. And above us to the right is a functional mosque of the Muslims. We all disagree on this man. He is still a point of unity for those who love him and disunity for those who do not. It goes on to say, verse 36, And there was also a prophetess, Anna, great respect given to this woman, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. You ever wonder if a grandma's prayers count? They do. This 84-year-old woman had been praying day and night. She would devote herself to intercession, that God's will would be done, that God's kingdom would come. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, about a week's journey back home. And this is all we know of the early years of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 40, is all we know of Jesus' early years. We know of his dedication, and then we know of the beginning of his public ministry at roughly the age of 30. These are called by some the lost years of Jesus. Many of the cult's false teachers will try to articulate what happened in those years. They'll try to fill them in, saying that he was with the Essenes, or he went east. When I did a debate with Deepak Chopra on ABC television Nightline, he said that Jesus went to study with mystics and with other communities of magical arts and superstition and paganism, none of which has any historical substantiation. That is all conjecture. All Scripture alone is God-breathed and profitable. Scripture tells us everything we need to know, and this is all that it says about the early years of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. All we know is that the Lord Jesus grew physically from boyhood through adolescence to manhood. That he grew spiritually, reading the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, praying. And he grew in favor. People respected him so much so that though his was a small town, as I have told you, of perhaps 50 to 100 people, they called him a rabbi. Now, he didn't come formally educated as a traditional rabbi, as a teacher, but in his town, there would have been a synagogue that housed perhaps 20 people. They would get together for prayers and readings. These are a very simple rural folk. Nearly, if not all of the women in town would have been illiterate. A handful of men would have been literate, perhaps five or six. Jesus was among them. He somehow was formally educated. Mary and Joseph did do a great job raising Jesus. They taught him. They loved him. They served him. They protected him. They got him an adequate education. We do see glimpses of Jesus as a boy at the temple, talking on a few, at least one occasion, perhaps more, with the scholars, and they're amazed at his knowledge. He grew in stature, physically, wisdom, spiritually, favor, to the degree that he was allowed to read the scriptures, that in his small synagogue in his hometown, they called him rabbi. Let me pick up this theme. What we have just read in Luke chapter 2 is this extraordinary event in human history. Jesus comes to the temple. And so let me explain to you, in as much as I am able, some of the theological significance of that moment, of that event. Now, the temple, which in the days of Jesus, as I have said, would have been entered to either through the gates to the right or to the left that are now filled in. We would have entered one way. We would have exited another. This was the thoroughfare for the majority of people who came to the temple. And for them, the temple was the house of God. And I have written five functions for you of the temple. The first is, it is a place between heaven and earth. The temple, particularly the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple, that is that is the connection between heaven and earth. That God is in heaven as creator, that we are on earth as created, and that God's presence dwelling in the temple in the Holy of Holies, it is, in fact, then that sacred, that most sacred place, that connecting place between God and humanity. Number two. It is the place of God's presence. It is the place of God's presence. God's presence being held by his own gifting and graciousness in the Holy of Holies. So literally on the earth, if you want to go to be near God, you have to come to the temple. And depending upon your religious pedigree and your holiness, according to traditions and ritual purifications, you are allowed to get as close as possible to the Holy of Holies. It is even considered to this day to be so holy that we took an underground tour at night following some of the ruins of the wall and we came to a place that is perhaps 60 feet from where it is believed and these are ruins under the current uh, Temple Mount and it was believed that that place, that section of the wall was 60 feet from the previous Holy of Holies And it was filled with women who were touching that wall. One woman was laying prostrate up against the wall praying. Another woman was bent over and she was weeping. The Holy of Holies is not there, but it was. And they were 60 feet away. And they were to this very day, 2,000 years later, expecting tragically and wrongly, for reasons I'll explain to you in a moment, that being there would get them closer to God. But that level of commitment that we find echoing in our own day, it resounded in the days of Jesus, because the Holy of Holies was just behind me, and you could get as close to God as possible by being there. Number three, it is where God's people would come to meet with Him. Do you want to meet with God? Do you want to pray to God? Do you want to hear from God? Do you want to sing to God? then you must go to the temple. You must go there to meet with God. And it is not as much that God needed a house. God is the creator of heaven and earth. But that God created a place for us to come and to meet with him. And so it was a meeting place. It was a place that for those who lived in the rural areas, in the villages, they would be peasants and they would save their whole life to make a journey to Jerusalem They had heard from their parents and their grandparents about what it was like to wash in the pools and to be adorned in white and to sense something of expectation and ascension to with God's people sing the Psalms of Ascent and to walk into the great temple to go from a town of a hundred, as most of the rural villages were, the places where Peter and Andrew and James and John and Jesus were from. And to ascend both physically and spiritually to meet with God in a town of 100,000, a a once-in-a-lifetime event. Number four, it was the place that sin was atoned for. It was the place that sin was atoned for. The ritual purifications, the wearing of white, the offering of sacrifices was done for the remission of sin. That was their expectation, their anticipation. There was an acknowledgment that before a holy, righteous, and perfect God, as revealed in the more than 600 commandments of the Pentateuch, meaning book in five parts, the law of Moses alone, they were guilty and condemned. They were sinners by nature and choice, just like King David. They knew, as he said in the Psalms, I am wicked from my mother's womb. That the city of David echoed the sentiment of David about the sinfulness of David and his descendants. And they would come here to have their sin atoned for. And the way this would happen is the holiest man, at least by tradition, was the great high priest. He had to be a descendant. He had to be a descendant all the way back to the days of Moses through the Levite heritage through the heritage of Aaron. He would be a man who would once a year undergo numerous bathings, cleansings. He would wear simple garments. He would confess his sins. He would be permitted by God's grace. One day a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. The Jews simply called it The Day. He would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. This was a place that much blood was shed. When fresh water was found, it was a great gift because there was a need for much cleansing. Many, many sacrifices were given here and the most important sacrifice was Yom Kippur Day of Atonement. On that day, two goats would be brought. A goat of substitute And a goat that we will call the scapegoat. Now the goat of substitute. He would be prayed over or it would be prayed over. Confessing the sins of the people. This is a national event. And then that animal would be slaughtered. Its blood would be shed. That it would substitute itself. Paying the penalty for sin of death. The other goat, the scapegoat. The sins would be confessed. And that goat would be sent away. History records that sometimes God's people would literally chase it away. And it was that our sins were atoned for and they are taken away. And this is all leading up to the coming of Jesus. So when Mary holds Jesus tenderly in her hands, a poor peasant girl from the village of Nazareth, and she is ascending the steps wearing white, knowing that this is the sacrifice. Her son will ultimately die to pay for her sin. She is carrying in her hands the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system, the entire Day of Atonement, the entire purpose of the nation of Israel, the construction of the temple, the consideration of the priests, and the sacrifices that are offered. This is magnificent. This is epic. This is historic. This is unprecedented. This is unparalleled. And all of this culminates, all of this sacrificial system in Jesus. And number five, the function of the temple was that it was the center of life and faith and worship. God's people were surrounded by enemies on every side. They were frequently destroyed and attacked. Many were martyred and murdered. Some lived in rural villages And when they would come to this place, they could be together as God's people. Does community matter to you? Does fellowship matter to you? Does being with God's people matter to you? When you meet someone who is a Christian, do you feel an automatic connection with them like you've met a long-lost family member? That was the kind of heartfelt community that would be cultivated here. It is where God's people would come to be together. It was the center of their life, the center of their faith, the center of their worship. Let me explain to you then about the temple. There were two. The first temple, the the framework of which was given to King David, but he was not permitted by God to build it. Why? He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a man whom God loved like the rest of us sinners. But he disqualified himself for that great act. And so then the task was handed to his son, King Solomon. And King Solomon oversaw the construction of the first temple behind me up on the Temple Mount and he dedicated it to the Lord and God's glory dropped upon that first temple and the people worshiped God. Over its history, at times, it was desecrated. By the times of Josiah, it had fallen into disrepair. There was ebbing and flowing throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament of paganism and idolatry and lethargy. Ultimately, it was ransacked and looted by Nebuchadnezzar and eventually that temple was destroyed until the time of Herod. Now, the line of Herod, I'll give you a little history, goes all the way back to the times of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, When Abraham slept with two women, he created two families. He created an Arab line and a Jewish line. And there was conflict between those boys. They grew up to be nations, the nation of Israel, the nation of Edom. The Edomites are the line of (coughs) King Herod. King Herod. That's why there's conflict between Herod and Jesus, even in Jesus' day. Nonetheless, under Herod the Great, the first Herod, the temple was rebuilt, and he expanded the temple so that it was roughly twice as large as the original temple that Solomon built. There are a few reasons for that. One, likely to accommodate more people, and secondly, to include more commerce. He created a second temple, and the... First portion of it was for sacrifices and the priests and for those who would come to worship God. And behind it was essentially a business district. It is where business would be transacted and it was dedicated to Herod. And this man was a megalomaniac. As we saw the stones that were cut to build that temple, each of them is marked so that you know that all of these stones belong to Herod. It's his way of stamping his brand on every single stone. He wants you to know that he built this. He wants his monument next to God's. He wants his presence next to God's. He wants his kingdom next to God's. It originally came out of a vision of Ezekiel. He saw this Herodian temple, it came to pass. It stood for about 500 years. It was this temple that Malachi prophesied about in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says this about 400 years before the birth of Christ Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to where? His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, the God who rules over all angels and demons. So 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophecy is given that we'll know who Messiah is, we'll know who Savior is, we'll know who Deliverer is, we'll know who God incarnate is for two reasons. Number one, a messenger will go before him, preparing the way through preaching. Who is that? John the Baptizer. Number two, The Lord, and that's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, will arrive at what destination? The temple. So again, back to Mary carrying Jesus in her arms up the steps of the temple, ascending physically, spiritually, wearing white, singing and celebrating. She is fulfilling Malachi. She is fulfilling prophecy. And Jesus comes to the Herodian temple. Jesus comes to that place. We see a little later in Luke 2, 41 through 52, that as a young boy, Jesus was in the temple debating with the scholars. He was very theologically astute. He was a very devoted student of scripture. His parents lost track of him. I'm sure Mary was absolutely terrified. Can you imagine that just for you mothers as an excursus and or you fathers? You go to Jerusalem, a town of 100,000. You're from a small town of 100. Your son is God and you lose him. That's a bad day. And you're frantic. Where is he? You're trying to backtrack and find him. Where did he go? He was traveling with us. We thought he was in the caravan. Where did he go? We had this occasion yesterday. We were all going to get on the elevator at the hotel from the 18th floor to the 1st. And my son Gideon, he's about three, he forgot his shoes. I said, i got to go back in his shoes. One of the kids pushed the elevator button. All of my five kids got on the elevator. I said, no, 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 wait. They all got off the elevator except my youngest daughter who is five and altogether lovely. And the door shut and she disappeared. Do you know that feeling, parents? I had flip-flops on, I had been shooting all day, I was absolutely exhausted, and I ran 18 flights of stairs in flip-flops. The elevator went down to the first floor. My daughter, who was five, said, Daddy, I didn't talk to anyone and I didn't get off the elevator, and Jesus just brought me back to the 18th floor. It went to the first floor, opened, door shut, went back to the 18th floor, opened, she's back to her family. But even for me, that few minutes, (laughs) you parents know what that feels like? You grandparents know what that feels like? Jesus' mother and father, they felt that. They brought him here as a young man, and he is perhaps a teenager debating and dialoguing, and they lose him. I want to take you through the times that Jesus came to the temple. That's the second that Luke records. And when they find him, they ask, where were you? And he says, I was in my father's house. See, for others, this is a magnificent temple. And for him, it is just his dad's home. In chapter 4, verse 9 of Luke, we see that Jesus goes away for 40 days in the wilderness. He is fasting and praying. I would assume, presume, that he was studying and memorizing the book of Deuteronomy because when Satan comes to him, the last Adam, to tempt him and contort scripture as he did the first Adam, Jesus repeatedly quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And we'd see in Luke chapter 4 verse 9 that Satan took Jesus and in some miraculous supernatural way brought him to what place? The pinnacle of where? The temple. To look over all of Jerusalem. And what Satan offered him was a kingdom without a cross. What he said to him was essentially, Jesus, if you will honor me, then I will give you whatever you want. And he was foolish enough to believe that Jesus wanted anything other than the glory of God the Father. And unlike the first Adam, the last Adam did not sin. But he was brought to the pinnacle of the temple. We see as well that Jesus was often in the temple, often speaking in the temple. Luke actually uses these words day after day. So being here. In Jesus' earthly ministry, beginning at the age 30, for some three years until he was roughly 33 years of age, we get that by following the chronology of John and the number of Passovers and some of those variables. Jesus ministered from about age 30 to about age 33. And it says, day after day, as was his custom, he went to the temple, he preached, and he taught, and his fame grew, and the crowds followed him, and the multitudes would come to him. And it is not unlikely or impossible that he preached from these steps as the entry point for the largest number of people. It says this in chapter 19, 47, chapter 20, verse 1. Chapter 21, verses 37 and 38. And chapter 22, 53. Jesus keeps coming to the temple to preach and teach. And then something very interesting happens in Luke 19, 45. He is filled with rage and anger. And he cleanses the temple because he says, You've turned my house, the house of my father, into a den of thieves and robbers. And that was all the result of Herod. See, the original temple did not have the addition that Herod created. Herod, again, created a business district behind the temple. He expanded the temple to include commerce and selling of goods. It was a very corrupt area. If you come to Jerusalem today, Jesus would have a lot of tables to throw over. This would take him a very long time. Everyone has something to sell. Everyone has something to give. Everyone has some hook, some angle, some relic, some holiness, some goodness to offer you. Buy this. It's from here. It's special. It's dedicated to the Lord. It's sacred. Jesus saw that and was furious. And he overthrew the temple uh, tables. He overthrew all of the merchants. And he absolutely rebuked them for using God for gain that was shameful. And now I share you this reading from Luke 21, 5 and 6. In my opinion, these are the most important verses regarding Jesus and the temple in all of Luke's gospel, and it is echoed in other gospels. It is so important that the other gospel writers also include this. When we see Jesus first come to the temple, repeatedly come to the temple, everything culminates in this moment. This is Jesus' most important statement regarding the temple. Luke 21, 5 and 6. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, right? Herod had spent a considerable amount of money. He said, as for these things that you see, And he was showing them the temple. So you can imagine, we ascended through the gates. We were in the temple. It was twice as large as the first. Everything was magnificent. No expense was spared. All of those who came to pilgrimage were absolutely impressed as they stood there gazing at the temple. They said, this is amazing. We've never seen anything this glorious, tremendous, and phenomenal. And here's what Jesus says. As for these things that you see... The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus promises to destroy the temple, to destroy, I told you, the place between heaven and earth, the place where God's presence dwells in the Holy of Holies the place where people came to meet with God, the place where sin was atoned for, the place that was the centerpiece of life and faith and worship and community. He promised that the temple would be destroyed, that not one stone would be left on the other. They were enjoying the temple that Herod had built. For them, it would have been the most horrific thing to hear that like Solomon's temple herods temple would be destroyed actually when jesus is put to death and he is run through a series of false trials this is one of the charges that is leveled against him in mark 14:58 and 15:29 among their charges he claims to be god they have charges against him one of them is he says that he will destroy the temple Now, his claim to be God got him in trouble with the Jews and the Romans, and his claim to destroy the temple got him in trouble with the Jews and the Romans. The Romans had a great financial gain from the temple, and those who were Jewish had a great spiritual devotion to the temple, and so Jesus was here declaring war on everyone. Here's my question to you, and we've come many hours. We've journeyed for many days we find ourselves upon the steps to the temple where Jesus walked and the question that i want to articulate in my remaining time is this why did jesus why did jesus destroy the temple why did jesus prophesy and then fulfill his prophecy of the destruction of the temple why that question is the question when it comes to the temple what do you think what do you think it was an idol It was an idol. It's still an idol. An idol, by definition, is something that is created. Paul says it this way in Romans one twenty-five: They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator God who is to be forever praised. Amen. A created thing could be something that God has made, like the human body, comfort, pleasure. A created thing could be something that is made with human hands. In his great sermon on Mars Hill, overlooking the Acropolis, another great monument to man. Paul said, God does not live in temples built by human hands. As we are here, we find ourselves in the place of the deepest-rooted idolatry on all the earth. Now, let me explain this to you. Before you worship an idol in your hands or with your eyes or with your life or your money, you first choose the idol in your heart. The prophet Ezekiel says this in chapter 14, that God's people took idols into their heart. That's why all of these religions and all of their rules and all of their traditions are worthless. Because they do not address the issues of the heart. They do not address, address rather, the idols of the heart. Jesus says, out of the heart comes life. And our sinful heart, our natural heart, our birth heart is a heart of idolatry. We are descendants of the first Adam. We are sinners by nature and choice. We were created as the image bearers of God to reflect, to image, to mirror, to echo, to emulate, to show, to reveal, to glorify, to honor, to praise, to serve God. And what happens in sin is that we remain worshipers and we worship things that are created rather than God. And it starts by taking idols into our heart. Now, in the West, my hometown, the idols are secular. The idols are sex and money and fame and comfort and power and glory and prominence and prestige and making your name great and making your fame great. And in places like this, the idols are religious. And what tends to happen is that when the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is often proclaimed, It is that sinners need to repent of their sin, and I've said it repeatedly, and it is such an important theme of Scripture, I repeat it consistently, that religious people also need to repent of their religion. That religion is repugnant and repulsive to God. That, that in fact, religion is the great idol. Religion is the human effort to live by rules and keep score and count righteousness not by the gifting and imputation of Jesus by grace, but by performance and works, by devotion and committedness, by wearing of the right hat with the right color that indicates the right rabbi, or five times a day responding to the Muslim call to prayer as we have heard, or going to the holy place, or following the holy man, or committed to the holy traditions. All of which is most unholy. It's idolatry. It's the worshipping of a teacher. It's the worshipping of a tradition. It's the worshipping of a religion. It's the worshipping of a place. I say this not in any hatred, animosity, or anger to our Jewish friends. They have been so gracious to us and loved me well and served me well. But to go to the wailing wall. It's not the holy of holies. It's a wall. To see them there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, bowing, worshipping, crying, screaming, putting their prayers into the wall. Thinking that if they put them there, they'll be closer to God because that wall is closer to God. So now the prayer is closer to God. That some will back away from the wall without turning their back on the wall so that they would not dishonor the wall. As if the wall were God. As if the wall were the presence of God, as if the wall were the mediator of God. And battles are fought, and a mosque is built off to my right. And as I preach, Muslims look down on us, both literally and physically. And five times a day, their cry goes out for the time of prayer. And they bow down, worshiping not Jesus. The religious ideology is steep. And even Christians are prone to our religious ideology and idolatry. When you think that a Bible translation makes you closer to God, that speaking in tongues makes you closer to God, that you were baptized as an infant or an adult by sprinkling or immersion makes you closer to God. When you think that a particular spiritual gift or full-time ministry or the memorization of particular verses of Scripture or the singing of particular songs or being devoted to the old hymns Makes you closer to God. You're an idolater. You're not using things to worship God. You're worshiping things as God. And idolatry is the inversion. It is taking God out of the center of our lives. The substance of our identity. The security of our salvation. And it is putting someone or something else. Again, secular people put in that place of preeminence and prominence. Food. So their God is their stomach. Sex, that's what Romans 1 says, money, fame, glory, power, religious people put there, traditions, places, teachers. And the biggest idol on earth was the temple. It wasn't supposed to be. The problem wasn't in the temple. The problem was in the heart of the worshipers. And so Jesus said, he would destroy, he would destroy the temple. Isn't that amazing? I really want to impress upon you the importance of not just coming to this place and judging the religious people and overlooking the idols that you bring with you, in your own heart. We can have that same attitude as the man that Jesus condemns telling the story that two men went into the temple to pray. One man said what? God, thank you, I'm not like everybody else. For us it would be, God, thank you, I'm not a Jew. I've met Yeshua Messiah, Jesus. God, thank you, I'm not a Muslim and have to get down on my knees five times a day to pray eastward to a demon God. I said it. Thank you, God, that I don't belong to one of those whack job cults running around this place. Jesus says there was another man who came to the temple. He had the right attitude. He was less concerned with the idolatry in the hearts of all the other worshipers, and he was more concerned with his own heart. Jesus tells the story that that man couldn't even look up. He was absolutely devastated by sin in the face of the holiness of God. And he simply uttered this prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that man and not the other left the temple justified. The great theme of the Protestant Reformation, justified in the sight of God. You want to leave here justified in the sight of God? Be careful. Be careful that you don't leave here with religious smugness and pride, but you leave here with humility and repentance. We know then that Jesus ultimately was murdered, crucified. Not far from here, in fact, but outside of the city. I went there today, I saw it. There is a debate as to which site is actually the site of the crucifixion of Jesus. The one that we went to, and I believe is likely the place, is currently a bus station. It's a bus transfer station. It's called Gotha, the place of the skull. If you use your imagination off to the right, in the stone, the natural markings are of two eyes and a nose. It does look like a skull. On the top is a graveyard, and to the right is a mosque. No respect at all for Jesus in that place. That's where Jesus was crucified, outside of the city, along a busy street, on a high place. The most excruciating way to die, excruciating literally means, from the cross... I've shared this with you, but it's one fact that haunts me along the trip. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was scourged, he was marred beyond human likeness. You'll hear everyone in Israel say, Shalom. There's the Prince of Shalom. When I was in Ephesus about a week or two ago, we went into that archaeological dig and we saw those first toilets. I'm just continually haunted by this fact. Mm -hmm. That they would take the sea sponge to cleanse in the public toilets men and women. That they would offer that to Jesus in mockery on his cross. I mean, we're just talking the ultimate disgrace, the ultimate disregard, the ultimate disrespect. And what we hear is that when Jesus died he cried out in triumphant victory loudly it is finished what happened at the temple see what happened at the cross echoed in the temple the voice of Jesus from the cross echoed in the Holy of Holies what happened in the temple the curtain that separated the presence the glory of God on the earth from the people was torn from where top to bottom from God to us they had ascended up the steps but God had descended down to them in the God man Jesus Christ on the cross he atoned for their sins we went today to the place where Jesus and Barabbas were exchanged an offer was given do you want Barabbas or Jesus and they said give us Barabbas friends we're Barabbas We are guilty, damnable. We should go to the cross and we should hang there and bleed and die. And Jesus went there for us. Just as Jesus exchanged himself for Barabbas, so Jesus exchanged himself for us. And behind me, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Signifying God's presence being unleashed on the earth. In the very place that Father Abraham had been. In the very place at the top of this mountain. Where he was told, take your son, your only son, the son you love. Put the wood on his back. Have him climb up to this place. Lay him down to be slaughtered and sacrificed. And as Abraham took the knife in his hand, the son of expectation that he had been waiting and longing for, an angel appeared. In fact, it was the angel of the Lord. That is Jesus Christ. When you hear of an angel of the Lord, it is an angel. When you hear of the angel of the Lord, angel meaning messenger, that's Jesus. He's worshipped as God throughout the Old Testament. Jesus comes down. And stops Father Abraham on the hill behind me with a knife in his hand. Do not kill him. And then a ram was found in the thicket. And that ram was sacrificed. And the prophecy was given that one day another sacrifice will be provided to atone for sin. So that the children of Abraham by birth and new birth could come to have forgiveness of sin and fulfillment of Scripture. And here comes a son of Abraham carrying his own wood, the beloved, anticipated, longed-for, awaited, firstborn son carrying the wood to his place of execution. He willingly, just as Abraham's son did, laid himself down and he died. And the crucifixion of Jesus echoed in the place of Abraham. The sacrifice was offered. The prophecy was fulfilled. The temple was altered. The Holy of Holies was unleashed. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Sin was atoned for. Scripture was fulfilled. Salvation was granted. And the earth has never been the same since and neither will it ever be. As it was before, Jesus rose from death. Here are the last words of the Gospel of Luke. The last words of the Gospel of Luke. And they worshiped him. That's the answer to idolatry. You worship him, not food, not sex, not power power or fame or glory. The secular idols, not tradition and religion and rules and rituals. That's religious idolatry. You worship him. The only way out of idolatry is to worship him. You can change idols. You can go from an alcoholic to a Muslim. But you can't get out of idolatry unless you worship him. Jesus. And so they began worshiping him where they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the where in the temple blessing God. So amazingly, they go to the temple and they realize this is all taken care of now. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. That's the right response. And in 70 AD, now following Jesus' resurrection, they returned to the temple, they worshiped. The early church met from house to house and in the temple, courts, and they would gather large and small. And Christianity grew and Jesus ascended back into heaven. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what he'll return to? Mount of Olives. Right there. Zechariah 14 says Jesus will return right there. He'll split it in half. He'll create a valley. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And in it, we will worship God. We'll be with him, like him, for him, forever. That temple will not have anything in it. That city of the new Jerusalem will not have anything in it. And this new creation will not have anything in it made by what? Human hands. Nothing there to show, this is what I built, this is what we've done, this is what I've accomplished, this is our nation, this is our tradition, this is our religion, this is our greatness, this is our Babel. Instead, it will all be created by God, brought down and gifted to us literally under the feet of Jesus as he is King, Lord, God, Ascended, Savior, and Christ, ruling and reigning over all of his new kingdom and creation that he will bring with him upon his second coming. And in 70 AD, what happened to the temple, friends? What happened to the temple? What did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left on another. This temple is going away. This was foreshadowing. This was expectation. This was anticipation. And now it's all been fulfilled. It's all been superseded. The temple was destroyed. Just like Jesus said. And it's been buried for almost two millennia. Why? Why? we have no need of it. It served its purpose. It for hundreds of years prepared people for the coming of Jesus. And once he came, its purpose was fulfilled. Friends, I have good news to you. We didn't bathe with water. We bathe with Christ. We don't try and simply cleanse our body. We're cleansed from the heart out through repentance and faith, through giving our sin to Jesus, receiving His imputed righteousness. If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, make us clean, wash us clean from how much of our unrighteousness? All of it. So we don't bathe in water. We cleanse in Christ. Number two, We don't go to the temple. Why? Jesus is our temple. I I explained the purpose of the temple to you earlier. What is now the place between heaven and earth? That's it's Jesus. Where was God's presence on the earth? In Jesus. Where do we go to meet with God? Jesus, there's one mediator between us and God, this God who became a man, the man Christ Jesus. Where is sin atoned for? Well, in Jesus. Where is the center of our life and our faith and our worship and our community? Jesus. So today we don't go to the temple and I love that Jesus doesn't even give us an option. It's not like we come here, flip a coin. Do I go to Jesus or temple today? You go to Jesus or ruins today? Number three, we're not going to bring out a high priest. I'll tell you why. There isn't one because we don't need one the high priest was the intercessor and the advocate he would go between the people and god he would he would bring the people's sin to god and he would mediate and intercede and the priesthood came to an end with jesus why because he's our great high priest he's our great high priest hebrews says hebrews 4:15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness that he has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin isn't that amazing see In antiquity, the high priest would live a separated life. He wasn't exposed to the temptations and the trials and the troubles that the average common person was. Jesus is a high priest who could sympathize. He's lived in obscurity. He's been poor, beaten, spat upon, mocked, betrayed, disowned, abandoned, suffered, homeless, poor, broke, despised. Boy, there is a God, no matter what your circumstances, he relates to you. You relate to him, and there is sympathy. Aren't you glad that Jesus is our high priest? And lastly, we do not come today to bring a sacrifice. We're not carrying lambs or pigeons or turtle doves in our hands. Jesus has atoned for our sins. John said it well, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away The sins of the world. Paul says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, you didn't bring a sacrifice because Jesus died. Hebrews says once for all. Peter says the righteous For the unrighteous to bring us to God. And here, this is mind-bending. This is absolutely stunning. That so many today would say, we need clean, ritual, purifying water. We need to rebuild the temple. We need to institute the priesthood. We need to renew the sacrifices. And the answer is, no, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Isn't it amazing that all you need is Jesus? That dumb Gentiles like us, who really don't know anything of all this tradition and history, we walk around and say, that's a big rock. That's amazing. It all looks very old. We're from a country where Sears is old. You realize people have been here for a long time. A lot of wars have been fought. A lot of people have died. A lot of animals were slaughtered. A lot of Caesars and Herods come and go. Can't even keep them straight. A lot of high priests have served. A couple of temples have been built. And if you meet Jesus, you have everything. That's amazing. We have a word for that, grace. And as we leave this place, I will share with you two scriptures. First Corinthians three, sixteen and seventeen. Do you not know that you that you and 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 you, and you are what? Gods? What's it say? What's it say? Temple. As we sit here on, on the steps of the temple that Jesus was preaching and teaching at as we're in the place that Jesus stood. Remember this. Through the grace of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus, our high priest, our temple, our sacrifice, we, by the grace of God, become the temple of God. That the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and the sons and daughters of the Father, and He makes us the holy of holies. He chooses to dwell in us so that we don't need to go to Him that He has come to us. That we don't need to go to a holy place, but that through the Holy Spirit we could be a holy people. That's why the Bible says that all Christians are a priesthood of believers, that our whole life is about ministry. That you're all priests in Christ. That you're all temples in Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Jesus says, I'll destroy the temple, but no one should touch my people. They are my temple as well. Secondly, I want you to remember Ephesians 2 19 through 21. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer just dumb, pagan, idol-worshipping Gentiles forced to come up the back entrance and forced to walk through Herod's Market and go to the court of the Gentiles but never really get to be in on the action. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation Not of the stones of Jerusalem, but on the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being our chief cornerstone. We build everything, our church, our life, our family, our ministry, our legacy on him. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That the church, we collectively, as you see these stones, you're a stone that the church of Jesus Christ, all languages, tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples, it's no longer about stones, it's about people being stacked one upon another, serving according to their gifts, giving generously, growing to be more like Christ. Don't let these stones impress you as much as your brothers and sisters in Christ, whom together God brings as churches that are the church the presence of God, the people of God. He uses this amazing metaphor. I want you to see it while we're here. You're supposed to see one of these stones is you and the one next to it is your spouse and the one next to that, a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter, a friend, other people who love Jesus all being stacked one upon another to as the people of God, be the temple of God, for the glory of God, because of the Son of God. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Am I alone in this? It's overwhelming. Jesus. Jesus. Look what Jesus has done. We'll be talking about this for eternity at shaking our heads, completely bewildered at how amazingly gracious and good and generous our God is. That he would save us from idolatry. That as Jesus was adopted by Mary and Joseph, that through Jesus he would become our proverbial big brother, that we would be adopted by God the Father, that we would be the family of God. That we would receive all the benefits and blessings. That we would receive all the fulfillments of all of the expectation and prophetic anticipation of all of the scriptures. That God would come to identify with us. That he would die for us. That he would rise and ascend to prepare a place for us. And that together we will rise like Jesus did. And we'll be right to the left in the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven to be with Jesus and we will be happy Lord Jesus we ask for your grace over Jerusalem Jesus we remember we remember you weeping over Jerusalem and you do today may we depart here with tears in our eyes for Jerusalem and gladness in our hearts for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.